We ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 14. Our text for this morning is found in verse 29 to verse 31. So please follow along with me as I read. John 14, verse 29, where our Lord Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, rise, let us go from here. Up to this point, our Lord Jesus has spoken some remarkable words of comfort and consolation to his beloved disciples. Promises of his coming to them, providing for them a place in the Father's presence, Praying the Father, He would send them the Spirit, being their constant source of continued presence as He Himself would come to them, as well as the Father, answering their prayers, leaving them His peace. All these words are just filled with comfort and consolation to a group of men who were just despairing. They were troubled in their hearts. But now we find words of a different nature. I mentioned last week there was something of a transition that is happening. That Jesus is leaving words directed to the heartache of the disciples. And he's now drawing more attention to himself and actually telling them, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. We tried to explain exactly what that meant in terms of not his deity, but in terms of his mediatorial work as uh, the incarnate God-man. But again, the point of it is, it's not all about them. He's given a, 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 a lengthy distil- distillation of, of amazing words of consolation and comfort and encouragement to these men. But it's not all about them. It's not all about them. And it's not all about their comfort either. A lot of people just take their Bibles in hand and they start to read it for the express purpose of well, getting answers to their, their questions, their problems, their troubles. Maybe they sat in a hotel room and got a Gideon Bible where you have you know, for, for comfort, read. <laughs> for you know, questions about this, read. And they think that the Bible, that's what it's for. It's just a, a place just to go and get information about life's problems. But it's not all about us. God's Word is not given just for us. It's given to us, but it's given that we might glorify Him. That we might have our perspective away from ourselves, not living for ourselves, but living for Him who loved us and who gave himself for us. So we find Jesus moving away from the instruction directed to the comfort of these disciples, and he's coming on to comfort uh, to, to matters pertaining to himself. He's going to the Father. He's loving the Father. He's obeying the Father. His understanding of his work and mission in the world. And 
as he does many times in these uh, three chapters of instruction that we often call the farewell discourse, he often takes a moment or two to just stop and to reflect upon what he is saying and why he is saying it. And he does it here as well. He tell, and, and you know, you read it through and you have all kinds of issues that Jesus raises um, about his teaching, about his instruction. He refers to the timing of his instruction. He says, I've told you before it takes place. When did he do it? Well, before it takes place, I'm telling you these things. He tells them why he's telling them these things before it takes place. He says that you may believe. He speaks of the length of the time he's taking to give them this instruction by saying, I will no longer talk much with you. And then he says something, I think, about the urgency of his teaching. The ruler of this world is coming. And then he speaks of the way in which his own words and actions are guided and directed. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me. And he tells him something about why he does what the Father has commanded him. He says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then everything, everything seems to get wrapped up in chapter 14 with the words, Arise, let us go from here. Now, to listen to these verses, as I ran them through, and if you read them, even in a cursory manner, I think it's likely that we'd have a lot of questions. I hope there were some quizzical looks, there should have been, in some of the things I just said about what our Lord has said, because what we have here in these words is an abundance of little, what I'd call, niggling questions that have uncertain answers to those questions. Now, I call them niggling questions because there's nothing major here. Certainly nothing as critical as the whole question we looked at last week. How can it be that the Father can be said to be greater than the Son? But these still are niggling questions. They're slight in importance, but persistently annoying. That's what something that niggling is. It's slight in importance, but persistently annoying. And I'm annoyed by many of these questions in my own mind that I don't have wholly clear and final answers to. But I have provisional answers to all of them that I'm going to set before you this morning. My proposal this morning is this. I want to address these minor problems, these niggling questions, first. And then I want to come on what I think is the major point of these words that are filled with these niggling questions. And then finally address some matters personal to each of us. So when you boil it all down, what are we doing this morning? We're doing minor problems, major points, and matters personal. Okay? You all with me? Minor problems, major points, matters personal. Don't ask me why I came up with M's and P's. I just did. I just did. First of all, the minor problems. Well, first of all, Jesus speaks these words, he says, before they take place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. What's he talking about? What is he referring to taking place? 
Before what takes place? I tell you these things before what takes place. Well, he's talking about a lot of things, but what exactly does it mean? Well, I think again it means his going away. His coming back to them. Again, it's kind of ambiguous, but Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He knows what he's doing. He knows he's going to the Father through the cross. He knows he's going to come back to them through resurrection and ascension and exaltation and sending forth the Spirit. But all these things, he says, must take place. And when they take place, these disciples who are at this point distressed and troubled because he's going away and they don't know why and they can't figure it out when it takes place they will become strong in faith I tell you all these things before they take place that you may believe but now a second thing okay, the taking place is, is going away is going to the cross is going to the throne is coming back to them by resurrection as he's with them 40 days but ultimately as the spirit of Christ is given upon the church but the second minor niggling question is that Jesus says when these things take place having told them to you beforehand and they're occurring exactly in the way I said they would happen he says it's so that you may believe it's so that you may believe. Well, believe what exactly? <laughs> believe that they happened? Well, they happened. Uh, they happened. They're facts. W- what is it they are to believe about these things that are to happen? That they were to believe that Jesus was right about them? That he possessed a prophetic gift to tell the future? Well, it's likely more than that. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 19. Jesus here is speaking about knowing that one of them is not true and legit, that he's not a true um, servant of his. He's speaking about Judas, of course, the betrayer. And um, our Lord says in the words of chapter 13 and verse 19, He says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe, and thankfully there's some additional words to tell us exactly what he intends them to believe. He says that you might believe that I am. Now we have I am he added, but actually it's an additional word. Jesus is saying that you might believe that I am. Ego ami that I am that you would believe in the one who lays claim to the very name and the very identity of the God of Israel this is God's name Moses asked the question who is it I should tell the children of Israel has sent me and the Lord's answer was tell them I am I am that I am look go to Isaiah chapter 43 Turn to the book of Isaiah. This may have well been in our Lord's mind. 
There's lots of connections with what we find here in Isaiah 43 and what we find in John 14. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. We read, I am. I'm sorry, I. I am. He. (laughs) And again, the he there doesn't... uh, That's added. Is God saying, I, I am? This is Yahweh. This is God of Israel. I, I am who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will, I will not remember your sins. God's declaring his, his, his forgiveness of transgressions because he is who he is. He is the God of Israel. He's the God of promise. He's the God of covenant faithfulness and of covenant loyalty to his people. Turn to the 44th chapter of Isaiah, just the next page. And in the words of verse 6, we read this. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Isn't that interesting? The one who's speaking is Yahweh, the King of Israel. But there's an additional figure that's also present in verse 6. And his Redeemer. And who is his Redeemer? Well, Yahweh again. Yahweh of hosts. There's like two Yahwehs there. There are two lords. Much like the Father and Son, all being God. But that's what it seems to be here. Thus says Yahweh, the God of his King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come. All the rival gods, all the gods of the nations, all the Baals, all the Marduks, all the gods of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, let them come forth and let them evidence their deity by let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The point is they cannot. They don't know the future. You can go to the person with their crystal ball. You can go with the person who claims to be a prophet. All these modern prophets, what do they get? About 20% of their prophecies that come true. They have no ability to know the future. They have no ability to tell the things that are to come. Yahweh can, and Yahweh does. And Yahweh says, fear not, nor be afraid. Perfect words for the disciples in John 14. Have I not told you from of old and declared, you are my witnesses? That's what Jesus is setting these folks up to do. And if they're going to be his witnesses, they cannot be fearful. They cannot be in dread. They cannot be afraid of the things that are to come because Yahweh their God has it fully in hand. And Jesus is saying, I've told you before it happens. But when it happens, you may know that I am. Isn't that amazing? That's evidence in itself that Jesus is the God of Israel come in human flesh. That's minor problem number two. two. (laughs) 
What are they to believe? They're to believe that Jesus is Yahweh. That Jesus is the God of Israel come in human flesh. And now i got a problem number three. And that's this. Jesus goes on to say, I will no longer talk much with you. In verse 30. And in verse 31 he concludes with, Rise, let us go from here. I will no longer talk much with you. Rise, let us go from here. And both terms seem to be markers of the end of the discourse. And yet, without a break, without a word that says, now they left the upper room, they went to some other place, they crossed the Bokidron, they went into the Garden of Gethsemane, you have two more chapters of discourse that follows. I will no longer talk much with you, and yet two more chapters, and then a prayer in chapter 17? That doesn't seem like no longer talking much with you arising and going forth to a new place. Just what do these terms mean? I will no longer talk much with you. Arise. Let us go. Well, I want to suggest, first of all, that the term he uses, I will no longer talk much with you, may just be Jesus' way of saying, I will no longer talk much with you in the way that I've been talking to you. And what's the way that he's been talking to them? He's been talking to them in the way of comforting their fears. Of addressing their heartache. He's at the end of the comfort. And now he's going to begin the business of setting forth their responsibility. Of being the believing disciples who would function as his witnesses to the nations. Again, back at Isaiah 44, that seems to be the whole end of knowing that God knows the things to come, is that we would fear not, and that we would be witnesses, right? Well, that's what Jesus seems to be saying now. Because you see, when you come to 15, and you come to 16, there's a completely different focus. Jesus has already said what was needed to quell the distressed and troubled hearts of these men. The rest of the discourse is about their work, their responsibilities, how they would carry out their work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Much of chapter 15 is about the subject of bearing fruit, being like those trees and the vine, or the, the grapes and the vine, as the branches of the vine abide in the vine to bear fruit. It's a clear change of focus. So Jesus may well be saying, I will no longer talk much with you about your, about your troubled and fearful heart. I will no longer talk much to you about the things that are troubling you because the time's short. The ruler of the world's coming. Now let's say something about this matter of rise. Let us go from here. Now the thing I notice about this is that it's not followed by any indication that they did anything. It doesn't go on to say, so they rose from the table, they went out the door, and they went out into the street, they crossed the brook, they went into the garden, it doesn't say anything. 
There's no new scene. And all attempts to explain these words as a change in location, um, from my mind, it's not convincing. I don't know that I have a better solution, <laughs> but it, I'm happy at least to give you a guess as to what I think is happening here. My solution, this is not a change of direction to get up and leave the scene and go elsewhere. But rather, it's a call to rise above the distress and heart trouble that's afflicting them. To move on to the matters of the most importance that now are at hand. Let's go on. Let's arise from this morbid, downcast, rather self-indulgent distress and rise to the occasion as Jesus is himself doing out of love to his Father to be up and about the doing of the Father's will. So it seems to me that the words that begin verse 30 and end verse 31 are exhortations. Exhortations to move on. To move on from the heart trouble to the work that's now at hand. And first for Jesus, Jesus says, I need to myself to move on from this instruction I've been giving you to other instruction because the ruler of this world is coming. Now the ruler of this world obviously is Satan. The Satan that entered into Judas's heart and he left and he went out into the night. And so in so doing, he set in motion the events that's going to lead to our Lord's arrest. The events that are going to lead to his trial, the events that are going to lead to his ultimate crucifixion. The ruler of this world is coming. And he has not claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's Jesus' directives. Satan's going to accomplish his work, but it's not going to deter me from my work. Satan is going to accomplish his work, and my disciples, that should not deter you from your work. And so we come to the major point of the passage. The major point of the passage is this. The time is short. The devil has entered Judas. He's gone out into the night. His work of betraying our Lord is at hand. And in the light of that, we've got to be prepared to be doing the will of the Father. It's no longer time for self-indulgence. The enemy's work does not delay. We must not delay our commitment to the Father's commandments. Now for Jesus, this is not a deep problem. The ruler of this world is coming, he says. He has no claim on me. In other words, the devil seeks to do his utmost to destroy Jesus. And he believes that through his death... His kingdom over the world will remain secure because His kingdom is predicated upon one reality and one reality only human sin. Human sin. And you see, you know, we think the devil is omniscient in some way. He's not. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he thinks his ability to secure 
His kingdom depends on the death of Jesus. And actually that's the undoing of his kingdom. Jesus' death is the actual undoing of his kingdom. Because Jesus has no sin in him. There's nothing that he can do to harm Jesus. There's nothing he can do to get a foothold into the heart, the life of Jesus. There's nothing that death can do to Jesus. Because, again, death is the wage of sin. And Jesus has no sin. And so the certainty is that death can't master Jesus. Not even death can master Jesus. The devil believes that the death of Jesus will bring an end to Jesus. But death for Jesus is actually the way of life for the world. And so what the devil intends for evil, God intends for good. For the salvation of the world. Jesus says, the prince of the world is coming. And he has nothing, no nothing in me. In me he finds nothing. And all of his efforts will simply lead to one thing. Jesus' obedience to his mission. Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father. Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. There is the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is on a mission. A mission for the salvation of the world. A mission that leads him to be obedient to the to the commission given him by the Father. And that commission is to die and be raised from the dead. That commandment he has been given from the Father. To lay down his life. No man takes it from me. The devil doesn't take it from him. He's acting in accordance with the will of his Father. And his obedience will lead to the vanquishing of Satan, the death and, and of death. Through the death of Christ, Satan's disarmed. Satan is defeated. But it's interesting, our Lord is not so much caught up, well, no, the, prince, the, prince of the, the prince of this world is coming and he will be defeated. He doesn't say that. Go back to the text. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And then he's done with the devil. And he moves on to, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. See, at the end of the day, it's not so much that the devil's destroyed, though he is, it's that the Father's love is displayed. That the love of the Father and Son for one another is displayed in the obedience that Jesus renders unto the Father to do the Father's will, to bring about the salvation of a lost and a fallen human race. It's the love of God that triumphs. It's not the defeat of the devil that's foremost, although that's there. It's the victory of love. It's the conquest of the love of God over the hatred of men. The conquest of the love of God over the evil of sin. 
I don't know if this resonates with you, what I'm saying about this passage. It took me a while to get to these conclusions. It might take you a while to see them and come to them. But I'll leave you with some matters that I think are personal to each one of us. Looking at the minor problems of the passage and the major point of what I think it is, that we need to get over ourselves, we need to get over our own heartache and heartbreak and matters that pertain to us, there's major issues of God's kingdom, there's major issues of the salvation of the human race that Jesus says is paramount and foremost, that must gain our attention. I'd like to say to us as God's people this morning, it's a joy and it is a relief that our Lord does talk to us about our heartaches. He talks to us in his word about our griefs. He speaks to the issue of our fears and our troubles. And the wonderful thing about the incarnation is that because Christ has taken human flesh, he knows about these things from the inside, from being one tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's able to give comfort. He's able to give help. He's able to enter in with sympathy and fellow feeling to us in all of our burdens and in all of our needs. But brethren, there's a limit to the indulgence of God. Because God's goal with us as disciples is really what it was with the disciples in the upper room. It's to give us sufficient, real comfort, real relief to our distressed hearts, and then to say, rise above it. Get busy with the work I've given you to do. There's something more important than how you feel and how you get over the horrific feelings that you have. There's a work to be done. There's fruit to be born. There's a world to be addressed. Get over yourselves. They didn't say it that way, thankfully, but I think we can conclude that that's the intent. God's looking to raise up mature Christians who can stand on their own two feet. Now, with utter dependence upon Him for all things, but yet to be mature enough not ever to be licking our wounds. And there's a time when the wounds feel deep. There's a time to lick them and feel the depth of the afflictions of living in a fallen world. But there's always an answer that God's Word gives. There's real comfort and relief to distressed hearts to be found in the Word of God. But we have to gain maturity in faith. And so Jesus speaks to us of things present, of things to come, of things in our lives, all to the end that we would believe that He is the I Am. He is the God of Israel. He is the self-existent God upon whom all of our hopes and all of our confidence is to rely. But with our hope and our confidence relying in Him, let's live in faith. Let's act in faith. Let's rise above our fears, our distress. Let's live lives of obedience to the commandments of the Father, even as our Lord led the way to doing that. We too are to live in obedience to his commandments. It's really a question of what spiritual maturity consists in. You know, when our kids walk in from out playing and they skin their, their knee, you know, we kiss the boo-boo. We spend a lot of time saying, there, there, poor child, poor wounded feelings. And we spend a lot of time 
addressing those things. But hopefully you not have to do the same thing with a 38-year-old son. <laughs> Kissing the boo-boo and the rest. Thankfully he's mature enough to stand on his own two feet. Find out where the back teen is or where the mercurochrome or iodine, whatever you're going to put on it to prefer you put the band-aid on and be able to do it himself. Maturity means you're not dependent upon that kind of ministry of comfort because you can stand on your own two feet by faith. By faith. With full confidence in an all-sufficient God and act in obedience to his commandments without being emotionally crippled. See, Satan's work is to make us emotionally crippled. To make us ever saying, oh, we're so hurt, we're so devastated, we're so troubled. Jesus comes to address us and strengthen us and enable us to stand by faith. But you know, and the second thing I'd like to say to you, it's, it's, it's our wisdom as the people of God to give very little place to the devil to find something in us. To give the devil a wide berth of access to our lives from which to plague us. That's not wise. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way. He says, give no place to the devil. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him a toehold. Don't give him any place for which he could drive us to despair. Where he could drive us to be divided from our brothers and sisters in Christ. No place to cripple us with the fears of the world's favor or the world's frown. You see, what the devil uses simply is sin. He uses our desires for sin. And it's as we keep ourselves free from sin by daily confession of our sins, daily mortification of our sins, daily putting on our Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to fill the lust thereof, to live in the hope and the faith and the love of the gospel in proactive ways. These are ways that we just give the devil no foothold, no place from which to attack us and to divide us and to dispirit us and ultimately to destroy us. So the message of the passage is we've got to rise up. We've got to put away our fears. We've got to put away our distress. We're to give ourselves to the work that God's given us to do with faithful, hopeful, and loving hearts by the grace that God alone can give. May God be pleased to encourage our hearts and help us to consider these things and to give us light and understanding in them. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this portion of Scripture. In many ways, it's very confusing to put all of the pieces together. And yet I hope that what has been said this morning has been encouraging to the saints and helpful to their understanding. And help us again, we pray, to mull these things over. Help us to meditate upon your word. Give us instruction in the truth as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.